My name is Jack, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. I'm glad to be here tonight and be here sober. It's a privilege to come down here. Good friend of mine sitting back in the back. Mickey, he told me he's pretty sleepy, so I'm going to try not to put him to sleep. <coughs> you know, Big Book tells me to tell what it was like, what happened, what it's like. I was born in eastern Kentucky. Uh, my dad was a coal miner. My dad was a heavy drinker, his weekend drinker. I think the first time I ever, uh, I never would have bothered none of my father's liquor because I know if I did, he'd beat me to death. And But I wondered what it would do. And so when I was either 12 or 13 years old, I volunteered one day to wash dishes in a restaurant. I had one thing in mind. I wanted to steal a case of beer. And they let me wash dishes, and I stole the case of beer, took it out the back door, and there was a church up on the hill, and I went under that church and hid that case of beer under there, and there was several graves under that church, and it was about as high as those tables back there between the bottom of the roof and the, the grave. The next day, instead of going to school, I crawled back under that church and laid there and drank that hot beer, and it seemed like my whole life changed right then. Man, I felt the best I'd ever felt. I came out, I looked like I'd been working at the coal mines, and I thought, man, I had a good time. From that point on, every time I got a chance, I got something to drink. So when I was 15 years old, I ran away from home. This was 1948, and I joined the Army. <laughs> they had a one-year enlistment in 1948, and I got to Fort Knox. I was going through basic, and man, I hated it. I thought, for the first time in my life, somebody would tell me what to do, how to do it. But I found out something I liked real well. I could go with PX, drink that 32 beer. Nobody said I couldn't have it. Nobody asked me how old I was. And I spent most of my time in that. A lot of times I got took the stockade for fighting in the PX. I never left Fort Knox for that year. I wrote my dad a letter. I said, would you please get me out of the Army? He wrote me back and said, for one year, I'll know where you're at. <laughs> he said, if I can do anything to keep you there longer, I'll do it, but I won't do anything to get you out. I don't know how I made it through that first year, but I finally got through it and got discharged and went back to Wheelwright. And I told about all the foreign countries I'd been into, and I never left Fort Knox. <laughs> but it was all good drinking talk. They'd pass around a bottle, and I'd tell another lie. And it, by the time I was 18 years old, I spent most of my time in that pool room. A guy walked in when I was 18 and said, let's join the Army. I said, let's go, because he had a fifth liquor. I know today if he'd have said, let's go rob a bank, I'd have said, let's go. If he'd have said, let's go kill somebody, I'd have said, let's go. And I joined the Army again, and I wound up in Fort Knox. And I thought, what on earth have I done? I didn't like this place the last time. How am I going to like it even better this time? And they put me through a six-week refresher course because I'd had previous service. It took six months to get through it. Because every time they turned their head, I'd go home. <laughs> they'd take me back or send me back. I finally got through that refresher course and they're sending everybody to Fort Sam Houston, Texas. 
for basic, for medical basic, and then going on to Christ. This was in 1951. <coughs> I knew that they were all going down a troop train, and I didn't know what on earth I would do for something to drink on that troop train. Because I didn't think they served any cocktails on there. And so I went and asked the company commander if I could drive my car to Fort Sam Houston, Texas. He said, sure. But I didn't own a car. <laughs> he said, but because you've had previous service, I'd like for you to take all the men's orders. And that made me feel like I was real important. That they trusted me with that big vanilla envelope full of orders. They gave me $327 in money and 10 days to get to Fort Sam Houston. And that's the most money I'd ever seen at one time in my life. And I went into Louisville and got in the Club Cedar Bar, and I left there about three days later with about $4 left, hitchhiking towards Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Three months later, I'd made it to Oklahoma. I was scared to death. I didn't know there was a war going on. I was afraid to go to Fort Sam Houston. I was afraid to go home. I thought if they catch me, they're going to put me in front of a foreign squad and shoot me. And uh, I throw those orders over a fence at Fort Seal and ran and never did go back. Because, see, I made it back to Ohio, and I was in Akron, Ohio. Several times I got arrested for fighting and things like that. And I made it back to Akron. I woke up in jail one morning not knowing how I got there, because I'd been having blackouts for a long time at that point. And I thought, well, I just got in a fight last night or something. Two detectives come in and said, you're in a lot of trouble. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you shot a guy five times last night that I did. And he said, no, it's not your fault. So I knew that I was in a lot of trouble. And I knew I had to do some fast lines. So they took me in front of the judge, and I told the judge I just got released the prison war change in Korea. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was crazy or something. And he said he wasn't going to be the first judge to send him. Man, it just got released to the prison war change in the penitentiary. He said, if well, I let you go, will you go back to Kentucky? I said, yes, sir. Well, they said they'd call me over the next day and have me sign my release. And see, I picked up a real bad habit and all this traveling, because if you like to drink and you won't work, you've got to find some way to get money. So I started cashing bad checks all over the country. Back in those days, they had counter checks, and I was in uniform. I'd write somebody a $20, $30 check, and I had money to drink on. And I had checks floating everywhere. And the night before I was supposed to get out, they came in. It was, I was wanted in about 14 different states for cashing checks. And they had one of the fastest trials they ever had in the state of Ohio. Three weeks later, I was sitting in Ohio State Penitentiary. And I knew they didn't serve no cocktails in there. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do three years for something to drink? And then I found out if you got a job in the hospital, you could get alcohol. And so when they interviewed me for a job, I told them I the only thing I'd ever done in my life had been working around a hospital. And I'd never had a job in my life. And they put me to work in the hospital. So I told the doctor there, I said, you know, I've messed my life up. When I get out of here, I'm going back to school and I'm going to become a doctor. And I'm going to become a surgeon. They put me to work in surgery. I got alcohol for three years. 
I didn't get drunk because I didn't want to lose that job. When I finally got released, went back to where I'd ever thought I thought I'd been in the Army for three years. No, I didn't tell anybody where I'd been. And I met this little lady sitting over there in front of me now, and she's working in the fountain. I thought, boy, she's pretty. And she asked me, <laughs> and I finally, we started going together, and then we got married that year. And I told her all about my life. And I guess she thought she could do something with this alcoholic. And, Lord, she sure did. Because, you know, it's just less than a year, or I guess it's a little over a year, we found ourselves sitting in a three-room shack on Route 460 going through towards Grundy, Virginia. It had lights and electricity in that house, but I couldn't get it turned. There was a pot-bellied stove in the middle of the floor, and June was fixing water on that stove with some and coffee. And I looked at her, and for the first time in my life, I knew what got us there. I knew that my drinking was at the cause of everything that's happened to us. And I'd done the only thing that any mature child could do, and that was cry. And I asked her if she would get down on the floor and pray with me that night. It was on a Saturday night. I prayed to God to do something about my drinking. The next day, we went to the church she'd been raised in. I joined that church. was even going to go to school to become a minister. And I would have told anybody, I'll never drink another drop as long as I live. June was pregnant with her oldest child. Her mother wanted us to come back to Wheelwright so she could be with when the baby was born. We went back to Wheelwright, thought everything would be just fine. It wasn't three days that I was wondering what was going on in the pool room. And I thought there'd be nothing wrong with going sitting outside. So I went and sat outside, and the next day I went in and watched them play pool. I went back the next day, and somebody passed around. And I said, one drink won't hurt. So I took a drink. I went home, and the worst case of guilt come over me. And I thought, I was just lost. I tried to commit suicide. And you can come home and found me, or I wouldn't be here. Well, I knew everybody where I was going to walk around saying, Jack Tipton's crazy. He tried to take his own life. I didn't know they'd been saying that since I was 12 years old. I'd never thought of it. So we had to leave where I We went to Chicago. I was able to go to work, but my drinking just kept getting me all the time. When I was sitting in my first AA meeting in 1960 when I was 27 years old, June got a copy of 20 questions. And I came home. She had the suitcases packed. We had two children. She was ready to leave. And she said, if you take these questions and answer them honestly, I won't leave. And I was said yes to anything to keep her from leaving because I knew every now and then I had to get sober. And as long as she was there, she'd nurse me back to health. She'd take care of me. And I needed that. And so I took those questions to the bedroom, and I said, well, there's nobody here but me. I might as well try to be honest. So that out of the 20 questions, I had 19 yeses. Now, at the bottom, it said, if you have one yes, you may be alcoholic. If you have two, you probably are. If you have three, you definitely are. And I throw that piece of paper on the bed. I said, according to that thing, everybody ever took a drink is an alcoholic. Had real crazy questions like, did you ever have a drink in the morning? Did you ever have a fight with your spouse over drinking? 
Did you ever stay out all night drinking? I didn't know anybody could answer three yeses to that thing. And the only thing I answered no to was, do you drink much at home? I didn't drink at home. If I had one drink, I was gone. <laughs> and that was it. Well, I agreed to go to AA. And at that time, you know, that's how they got the name of the home group at Alcoholics Anonymous. Back in the, the old days, they didn't have anything like this going on in AA. They, uh, churches wouldn't even know let's go to church, let all have a meeting in their place. And they had no clubs. And so they met in each other's homes. And uh, I argued for five weeks that I wasn't an alcoholic. The first meeting I went into, the average age was 55 years old. And I looked around that room. I, there was no women in AA then. I said, I know why they're not drinking. They're all too old. But there was nobody going to tell me that I couldn't drink. And I lasted for five weeks, and they were meeting in our apartment. And June was fixing coffee. June didn't know anything about Al-Anon then. They didn't even have Al-Anon then. And uh, they were talking about the fifth step. And I said, I know you people are crazy now. That's your limitations. That read out on most of it. I ain't about to tell nobody. So they all kind of laughed after the meeting was over. June was mad as a hornet. I said, what are you mad about? She said, you have a bunch of drunks sitting around bragging about what you did when you were drunk. I said, fine. The next day I got drunk. For the next seven years, it's like I got on a sliding board and it was all downhill fast. I went to, my, we had to leave Chicago, right in front of the law, the police was going, just beat them out of town, come to Cincinnati, wound up on Skid Row in Hamilton High. Wound up living in flop houses, bumming on the street, fighting on the street. June got into Al-Anon then. That was about December of 19. And they were, I'd go home every now and then. And Gwen was her sponsor. They'd, try to, they'd tell me to leave. I said, you're not running me out of my own house. They'd say, well, Gwen said, if you don't leave, I'll call the police. I didn't want to go to jail, so I, I'd leave. Finally, I said, I'm tired of this. I went and got a lawyer in Cincinnati and asked, told him I wanted to sue Al-Anon. <laughs> they destroyed my marriage. And he, I didn't know he was in AA. He said, Jack, you can't sue Al-Anon, but I know a program that might help you. And uh, I didn't want to hear that. Well, it wasn't much long after that that... Uh, I got in a lot of trouble with myself, and I just couldn't stand any more. I had a blackout for about four days, and I came to myself. I was right out of the Williams Brewery in Newport, bar there, and I was checking like a leaf, went in to get a drink. And the bartender said, hello, Jack. I said, how do you know me? He said, you was in here all night last night. Most of the time, I could put bits and pieces back together. This time, I couldn't put nothing. The last thing I remembered, I was sitting in the Kiss Tavern on Thursday night, and it was Tuesday morning. That sobered me up. I didn't know if I'd been home, I hurt my family, I didn't know what I'd done. And so I started home, and I was afraid to go home, and I stopped in Mount Healthy and just started drinking double-doubles. And it seemed like the more I drank, the sober I'd get. I went on home and I found out I hadn't been there. 
And I told June I wanted to call Alcoholics Anonymous. She called the A number at 405 Oak Street. And they wouldn't talk to her. She had to put me on the phone. And I told them I needed some help. A couple hours later, two guys come out to our house and talk, talk to me. Glenn Carr and Emerson Langley. They're both gone now. They sat there and told me what alcohol had done to them. And they told me, if you can stay sober today, we'd be back tomorrow and take you to a meeting. And I told them I'd try. Next day, a knock came on the door, and I went to the door, and here stood an old man on two canes. And he said, you don't know me. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I've done something yesterday I've never done. He said, I've been in this program, and I've never done this before. He said, I had a stroke two weeks ago, and I got what we call a 12-step call on you, and I sent two other guys to come and talk to you. He said, I never slept last night. I knew I had to come and see you. He sat there with me in June for three or four hours. His name was Eddie Byer, the most best man I ever met in my life. And he said, uh, he told us all about him, everything that alcohol had done to him. And I was, the next day, that evening, uh, Glenn Carr came and picked me up. My first AA meeting insisted at it four or five o'clock. We're sitting outside, and he said, Jack, we have faith in you, and we have hope for you. I thought, man, he's crazy. Nobody had any faith in me, and everybody said I was hopeless. He said, now you can destroy some of the faith we have in you, but as long as you're alive, you'll never destroy the hope we have for you. I got real involved in AA, loved every minute of it. Stayed sober for three years, and we decided to go back to Eastern Kentucky. We moved to Prestonburg. They had a AA number in the phone book. I called all day, and nobody wouldn't answer. And the more I'd call, the madder I'd get. And finally that evening, Got an answer to Frank Lane. The phone was in his house. He said, we have a meeting every Saturday night in my office. He said, at 8 o'clock. I said, I'll be there. So I went that Saturday night to his office, and he said, good, we don't have to get nobody off the street tonight. Sit down and deal. They played Rook on Saturday night. Not a piece of AA literature. Uh, no big book, no nothing. And all I did was get real resentful. They're not doing it like they've done it in Cincinnati. And I went for about three weeks, and I said, I don't need to play Rook on Saturday night for, to stay sober. So I quit going. It wasn't a month or so later, I was going to go to a union meeting. I got a job in the union mines, and I thought, I'll go across and go up the West Virginia side. And I started up towards the... <laughs> in West Virginia, and I seen this beer joint. I thought, I should stop and have a beer, and nobody's going to know it. And uh, by the time I get home, I won't be able to smell it, and I ain't going to tell nobody nothing about it. So I stopped there, and I drank about three beers, and I looked at my watch. I said, them liquor stores closed in one hour in Williamson. And I went to the liquor store and got four-fifths of liquor and checked in the motel. I come home two days later. A lot happened to us after that. June had been an Al-Anon. She wasn't going to live with an active alcoholic. And uh, 
I wound up drunk for six months in Detroit, Michigan. Vicky Carr came out with a song with pen in hand. And I was sitting in the gold cup lounge, and some guy kept playing that song over and over, and I told him, don't play that song again. And he did, and when he did, him, jukebox, and everything went through. I just about destroyed that bar. I knew I, some way I had to get back. I had to get back with my And I went back to Eastern Kentucky. I sent the word to her somewhere, and they put me in the hospital. There, and they gave me formaldehyde and all that. And I knew that I had to get back where there was a. We left Eastern Kentucky and went to Columbus, Ohio. We stayed. I started, I got involved in recreational land. Stayed sober for five years. So living in Topeka, Kansas. <coughs> got a, had a real good job, made a lot of money. And I got to poor me so bad I couldn't hardly stand and I always heard around AA, if you stay poor me long enough, you say, and I come home one evening, and I thought, nobody cares nothing about me. And I went three blocks from the house. There was a liquor store and a motel right side by side. And, got, and I said, I'll never come out of this. I had a pistol in, in my car. I, I put that gun to my head, and I thought it hit me. Next night, night, I went back to get it. I stayed in that hotel for five Then why? How am I going to make day? Tomorrow I'll get 10 more fish. And a knock came on the door. I wouldn't go to the door. Opened the door and I had a night latch on. I had to kick, kick it in. And one guy in AA that I didn't like, it was him. I found out why I didn't like him. He was so much. And he said, you want some help? And I said, they started with the door. And I said, yeah. they came back. And they took me to the hospital. And I w went to treat. We got out of treatment. Back then, when you got out of treatment, the alcoholic had a, a cup, and the, the spouse hung a saucer. And you had to decorate your cup and the saucer. And June wrote on her saucer, let it begin with me. And so we got out of treatment, and we went to our first to the international conference in Denver, and the theme of that conference was let it begin. I ran into a lot of people from Cincinnati that I knew, and I got back real involved in AA and loved every minute of it. Stayed sober. <clears throat> in 1978, I got a call. Jack, how would you like to come back to Eastern Kentucky and work as an alcohol counselor? And I said, I always wanted to do that. And I, I said, I don't know. I'll let you know. I talked to my sponsor about it. I talked to my group. They said, that's the decision you're going to have to make yourself. And so we decided to go back to Eastern Kentucky. June works as alcohol counselor in Floyd County, and I worked as alcohol counselor in Pike County. And I found out real fast I wasn't no counselor. Oh, I want to tell somebody, just read the big book, go to meetings, and get a sponsor and stay sober. They, was, they done those things like that, those 20 questions I had. All they did was ask somebody a bunch of questions. And they'd run a, see some drunk downtown, come back and write an uh, order on like they'd been right in the office talking about it, just writing paper. And I found out that wasn't for me. In fact, I quit a job making anywhere from 1000 to $1,500 a week and took a job making $800 a month. I couldn't buy milk. And I said, i got to do something else. Well... The county 
made me pre-trial with this officer along with that. He had subsidized my income. A judge was my best friend. Now, the only thing any judge ever wanted to do for me was lock me up. And here I had a judge that was my best friend in Pike County. I could sit on the bench with him every morning. I could nod one way and a guy go to treatment, nod another way go to jail. You can't give a drunk that kind of a power. Because I thought I was Mr. AA. Man, I had all the answers. I was a drunk looking for a place to happen. I finally quit that job and started selling coal trucks. <coughs> well, that judge told me, Jack, if you sell somebody a truck, I got a whole garage full of beer and whiskey and everything. He said, it wouldn't be a bad idea to give him a case of beer. I said, no, not at all. So I had an international scout as a demo, and next day I went up to his garage, and I put about 30 cases of beer in the back of that scout, and went off selling coal trucks, giving away beer. And uh, the next day I said, well, ain't nobody wanting a hot beer. So I went to the Pepsi Cola Company and got the biggest cooler they had, held five cases, and I iced it down, and I'm out giving away beer. I'm sitting down at the, <coughs> at the dealership, and Don Taylor walked in and seen that cap full of beer, and I said, he'll go tell everybody I'm drinking. It wasn't a week later that I started. Well, June still was real active, but now she wasn't going to live with no active drunk, so I had to leave. That judge got right off because he was drinking, and we moved in together. <laughs> and we was living in this house. He went to a judge's conference. And he had a whole room full of liquor and wine, champagne. That week I drank everything in that room and I had one quarter chart of moonshine left. That was on December the 11th of 1981. I was wedged between the coffee table and the couch, couldn't get off the floor. And I had my pistol laying there and I said, I'll put it into it all now. And I put that pistol in my head and that thought hit me again. If there is a God, and you take your own life, you can't. So I laid it down, and I said, I got a real smart idea. If I put one shell in that pistol and spin it around, if it goes off, it'd be an accident. It won't be so. And I put one shell in that gun. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. I spin it around and snapped it to my head. I said, I'll do every, this every hour on the hour. I know before the day is up, it will go off. So at 10 o'clock, I done it again. At 11 o'clock, I done it again. 11.30, Jim C. Justice walked in the door and said, I got a guy sick down the road and grabbed that quarter chart of moonshine out the door he went. I said, what's he talking about? A guy sick down the road. I've been trying to blow my brains out for three hours. And he took the last drop of liquor out of the house. I said, well, it's not going to last much longer anyway. At 12 o'clock, it time, come time to play my game, and my pistol was gone. About 1.30, him and another guy come back. said, you want some help? I said, yeah, I'd like to get off this floor. They helped me up on the couch. He said, Jack, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. I said, well, take me to Salem, Virginia, because I knew they'd do He said, I'll take you there, but I, that's not where you need to go. I said, where do I need to go? He said, you need to go right down to the lane house. It was a seven-day detox. He said, you need to face all these people around here you've been trying to tell how to face over. I said, Jim, see, any place is better than where I'm at right now. So I don't care where you take me. He took me down to the lane house, and it's getting ready to put me to bed. And Don Taylor walked in. That, uh, 
He said, you need that bed like you need another hole in your head. We went to Druther and got a cup of coffee. He said, Jack, I don't know what in the world I could say to you that I haven't heard you say. He said, the only thing I can say to you today is you better quit talking that talk and start walking that way. I sat there that day and I made up my mind, whatever it took, I was going to stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called June and asked her if she could get me. She said yes. That she heard something different in my voice that day. Haven't had a direct sense. I got real involved in that, eh? That's when I first met Mickey and, and uh, so a lot of people. Uh, we got involved at the state level. Went to all the state meetings. I served as secretary for one term. And uh, I loved everything about it. See, I know today why I yo-yoed in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. See, when I drank after I started to become a minister, I got real spiritually sick. I lost all spiritual values. But when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't say there wasn't a God. I was afraid there might be. And I knew if I said there wasn't none, I was in a lot of trouble. But I knew that I didn't have a shot no how. If, if it was a God, he's keeping some kind of score. And every time I do something wrong, he's going to make a check mark. If I do something right, he'll make a check mark. The wrong side so far, as a good kind, can't catch up. So I just give up on anything spiritually. And you people would talk about God in AA. And I thought, that's for you. That's not for me. I tried that a long time ago. It didn't work for me. And so I just relay stuff. I, I wouldn't tell nobody about it. A sponsor and didn't talk to nobody about it, but I stayed real serious, spiritually sick. And they, you know, alcoholism is threefold disease. Most alcoholics I ever talk to, the first thing they do with alcoholism is start. The next thing is mental. We start having blackouts. Can't remember what we do. What everything is, we think we're crazy. The last part of alcoholism is physical. We got to be hospitalized. Can't work. Can't do anything. We get well in the exact reverse. You come to AA, the first thing you start feeling better. Stick around a while, you remember your name. Your mind starts to clear up a little bit. This is the only program in the world you back in admitting you're crazy when you come in here. You don't have to be restored to something you ain't lost. And our second step is right up front. You know, get restored to sanity. And the last part is spiritual. If you don't grow spiritually in Alcoholics Anonymous, you will drink again. It'll be a period of time that you will drink again if you don't grow spiritually in this program because it is a spiritual program. I've heard people say, now I'd like to talk on the spiritual side of, of AA. I say, what's the other side? There is no other side of this program. I found my God in Alcoholics Anonymous, a loving, forgiving God. God has blessed me in so many ways in the last 31 years that there's no way in the world I could ever even come close to uh, being happy for what I got. My oldest daughter had her first son. She had to have corrective surgery. You know, I was always taught a man never prays in public. A man don't cry. But she had, my daughter had to have corrective surgery to have that baby. And I found a little room and I got on my knees. I said, God, please let that baby be all right. I'll try to make amends through it, what I've done to her. 
And I heard her a lot when she was young. She had, her, had a boy. He's 27 years old now. He's my buddy. My youngest daughter had her first child. At 17, he's 17 now. She named him Jack. I tell you one thing, if I'd been drinking, they would have put Jay in his name, let alone Jack. That's one of the greatest compliments I ever got in my life. She's 48 years old now. She was raised around Alcoholics Anonymous. All her life, AA and Al-Anon people have been around. She'll come and sit in my lap and put her arms around my neck and say, Daddy, I love you. That's because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because when I came here, I sure wasn't very lovable. I had no love to give and none to take. God has blessed me in so many ways tonight. You know, I came down here... I, don't, I was trying to think tonight, I don't know if June and I were here at the first roundup or not. I know we were here at the second, because I was on the board at the third. For a long time, we came down here. It's Juanita and Bob, and they started this, and Marietta was here, and, and uh, Peg and, and John Chumley, Larry and Barbara Adams. I, they, those people being in my mine in my heart ever since all this happened. You know, I've got, I look at Mickey back there. I feel good. I love to hear Mickey talk in this program. He's got 46 years of sobriety. Bob had 50 years of sobriety. We lost a gentleman about two months ago in Harrisburg. He liked two weeks having You know, I said, if I stay sober, which is the first time I went in, I'd have it over 53 years, but I didn't drink one drink too many or one not enough. I drank just enough to be where I'm at today. I, I love where I'm at today. It's an honor to be here tonight with you. I spoke up in, at, in Cincinnati last month, and Mickey and I both was on the same program when Oak Street celebrated 68 years. It was an honor to go back there and remember all the, the good times, all the good things. You know, every friend I have today, my sponsor, he's gone. Me and Don, Charles Usley, run around together all the time and go to meetings. Sometimes we come back, people think we've been on a drunk because we'd last a lot, so much and had such a good time. And uh, I was the oldest of the three. All three of them are gone. They all three died sober. I spoke at two of them's funeral. I don't know why, for me, God must have had some. You know, my life, I can look back now, and it seems like AA has been connected around my life, all my life. When I got in trouble and went to the penitentiary, I was standing in the Mayfair Hotel in, in Akron, Ohio. I give them a bad check. It, 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 it's just wonderful today to be loved by my family, the people that I know in this program, the people that I love in this program, I told my home group Tuesday night, I said, AA does not need Jack Tipton. AA is going to go right on without me. When I'm gone, there'll still be good AA. But Jack Tipton needs AA. I need the people in it. That's my measure. See, when I want to do something and I think about it, I got a measuring stick today. I look at my sponsors and my, my friends, and I see them in my mind, 
And I say, but I mind them seeing me do it. If I mind them seeing me do it, I, you know, I couldn't believe it when I started going to state level. Frank Lane was the second delegate of the state of Kentucky. He was the one having those rook games on Saturday night. And then it dawned on me when we was out in Kansas, all three of those guys were still sober. I was the only one got drunk. So what they were doing was working. It was keeping them sober. And there ain't no wrong way to stay sober. So it's just, it's just a pleasure being here tonight. I'm not the man I want to be. I'm not the man I ought to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not the man I used to be.